so excited to bring you this round of the podcast. We wanted to get it out before the Autism New Jersey conference, and we just made it. Our show notes and the CEs on our website may not be up right away, but check back in at the beginning of next week around October 24th, 25th, and everything should be up. This round is worth one ethics CE at a great price, so definitely hit that up. Rosalie and Sandra are amazing debaters and are doing incredible things for our field, so you also want to check out the show notes to see all of that. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Enjoy all of the thought-provoking content in this round. Okay, welcome to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse to advance the field of behavior analysis. I'm your host, Megan Miller, back with round 13 and two more incredible guest speakers. Uh, We're going to take a deep dive into an approach you've probably heard a lot about but may not know a ton about, trauma-informed care or trauma-informed ABA. Our motion for today is ABA is inherently trauma-informed. I am super stoked to have Rosalie Prendergast and Sandra Bishop joining us. Both of you are, you're just dynamic speakers. You're so passionate and knowledgeable about this topic, and I'm psyched to watch this debate unfold. Um, But before we start, I'd love you to uh, both tell us a little bit about yourself. So anything that you're working on, plugging, um, you're free to do that here. Rosalie, do you want to start? Because you're going to be deba- debating the pro side of the debate that ABI is inherently trauma informed. Do you want to give us a little bit of insight into who you are? For sure. So I'm Rosalie Prendergast. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I have been certified since 2009. I also have a master's in counseling, which I think provides me a little bit of a kind of different insight onto uh, some of the things that we're going to discuss today. Um, Another huge piece of who I am is the happy medium approach. Uh, We've been working on that for the last 10 years within my tiny little practice, Eclipse Therapy. We're out of Evergreen, Colorado. And the happy medium approach kind of bridges all parts of our science. It takes kind of direct contingency management. It takes RFT with language as intervention. And then it moves into psychological flexibility uh, with the DNAV model. Um, So within all of that, we've we've worked with a lot of individuals with with very interesting histories, big histories, big behaviors um, in school settings, community settings, home settings, and across the lifespan. So I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this topic today uh, from that kind of lens. That's awesome. I I feel like the work that you do is so beneficial and is so widely disseminated in our field. And I really appreciate all the content that you put out there um, because I really just think it's growing, you know, this, this great group of clinicians that hopefully, you know, we're, we are and are becoming. So thank you so much for that. Um, All right. And representing the con side of the debate, the debate that trauma-informed care is within the science, but not really implemented on a wide scale, will be Sandra Bishop. And Sandra, we're so psyched to have you here too. You want to give us a little insight into who you are? Yes. So first off, I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, uh, I think you're awesome. Um, So um, I am Sandra Bishop and I am the um, uh, 
founder and CEO of Basics ABA Therapy, which is based in um, DC. I'm also the president of DC ABA. Um, I was also certified in 2009 um, as a BCBA. So um, kind of a weird um, uh, place to be as a BCBA. Um, uh, DC, uh, APBA um, right before COVID did a like state of ABA and said that two thirds of BCBAs had been certified in the last three years at that time. Two thirds? Uh-huh. And so, um, uh, and so, yeah, so then there, so there's the like BCBAs who've been BCBAs for like 30 years and then the like baby <laughs> BCBAs. And then there's this like weird group of this like, <laughs> 13 to 10 years that are like us. So it's always nice to meet this group. Um, <laughs> I'm like the tail end of that group. Yeah. <laughs> I start, I took the long way. I wish that I had done it a little differently, but, but you guys yeah, are, no, you guys are and the it's, group, you know, you're the group that's doing all the stuff. <laughs> well, and it, it, I mean, it really is right. Because we were all trained by the, the veteran BCBAs. Right. Yep. And we, we realize that we want to do things differently and we have this opportunity to train the new BCBAs who are out there listening to the autistic advocates and realizing they want to do it differently. So it's a really interesting place to be, but, um, but yeah, so I've been doing trauma work, um, since I became a foster parent, um, nine years ago. Um, and it really transitioned how I did my practice. Um, and I developed um, a model looking at trauma events as a setting event. Um, and I do webinars, I present at conferences. Um, I'm going to be a keynote speaker at Utah ABA in August. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's super exciting. And then um, I have a trauma informed um, behavior. Um, handbook that's super cool um and so yeah so I'm super excited to be here and talk about this yay thank you so much and I downloaded the the mini handbook I have to get the bigger one but um I downloaded it's so chock full of information so thank you for again for putting that out there because that's also a free source that people mm -hmm. can access I really appreciate all of that because I feel like you know we all are going to move forward together so Hey, I'm just gonna jump in and interrupt real quickly. Just wanted to let you know, ABA Ultimate Showdown's parent company, Grand Behavior Services, is an approved ACE provider, and a bunch of our rounds are now counting for continuing education credits. We also have asynchronous CEs on our website, grahambehaviorservices.com. They're all reasonably priced, help you reach that magic 32 hours, and your support's gonna allow us to keep bringing you quality, thought-provoking content. So thank you, thank you, thank you, grahambehaviorservices.com. This episode will count for one ethics education hour, but in order to earn it, you need to hop back over to that website and enter the first code phrase, which is throw a shoe. What's the significance of the term throw a shoe? Head on over to our show notes for Sandra's full explanation. It will stay with you. We'll put all of your uh, links to your companies in the show notes and anything else that you guys wanted to plug. Like I know Ro Rosalie, you have that new RBT course. Um, so anything you guys wanted to Ooh. put into the, um, into the show notes, we can include that there. So, uh, all right. Just want to do a little housekeeping before we start. The motion for this debate again, is that ABA is inherently trauma informed and we're all in ABA. We know that a solid, solid operational definition is key. So 
let's get on the same page. Um, and thank you again for Rosalie and Sanj for helping me out getting these wordings correctly. Um, all right, I want to start with Cooper Heron and Heward's definition of applied behavior analysis straight from that third edition of the white book. Um, the science, they define it as the science in which tactics derived from the principles of behavior are applied to improve socially significant behavior and experimentation is used to identify the variables responsible for the improvement of behavior. So that's what we're debating, right? That that what a, if ABA is inherently trauma-informed, and that's the definition that we're going to use. Um, one article that's an excellent recent read on this topic is Roger Rahman and uh, colleagues 2022 toward trauma-informed applications of behavior analysis. The authors cite Harris and Fallot from 2001 that, quote, being trauma-informed means to know the history of past and current abuse in the life of the consumer with whom one is working, and to use that understanding to, to design service systems that accommodate the vulnerabilities of trauma survivors and allow services to be delivered in a way that will facilitate consumer participation, end quote. So they define um, four aspects to trauma-informed care. One, acknowledge trauma and its potential impact. Two, ensure safety and trust. Three, promote choice and shared governance. And four, emphasize skill building. It's an excellent article. You should go read it. They also make a point that psychological trauma has no universal definition, but that, quote, most sources acknowledge that it uh, that it's involved um, exposure to an event or series of events that adversely affects functioning and well-being. Um, I know that uh, Rosalie gave us the definition um, by the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration for trauma, which is quote an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spirit or spiritual well-being. End quote. Um, I also wanted to just uh, discuss ACEs real fast. That's refers to adverse childhood experiences that are outlined specifically in, a, in an assessment called the adverse childhood experiences. And it scores various risk factors for stress and trauma, including different types of abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. Um, adverse childhood experiences span a wide range from one-time or short-lived events to recurring or long-term events experienced in childhood. These events are potentially traumatic and may cause lasting effects that vary across individuals. I want to throw it to um, both of you to just give, maybe give a little bit of further insight into this assessment. And Sandra, you want to start? Yeah, so the ACEs is, um, I think it's really important that we understand that as a foundation. Um, I, I think I don't use it day to day in my practice, though as BCBAs, we can implement it. Um, but it's useful to know because it's used in all the research. And so if you've had the event, it's a one. If you haven't, it's a zero. And so it's a very clear way to measure exposure to traumatic events. And so it's able to be used in the research and then they use it to correlate with long-term outcomes. And so the CDC has some beautiful research on long-term outcomes associated with your ACE score. And the higher your ACE score, the poorer your long-term outcomes are. And so there are some things that you would expect, right? You're more likely to have broken bones. So if you have experienced physical abuse, you're more likely to break bones, right? You're more likely to experience depression. Maybe that seems more likely, right? If you've experienced neglect, abuse, things like that. But also things like you're more likely to have cancer and heart disease, experience unemployment, um, uh, early death, things like that. 
And the higher your ACE score, the more likely that's going to happen. Even inter, uh, multi-generational poverty. Um, and um, I think as BCBAs, we like to see the data and the data's there. Um, I think something else to consider is that though some of the questions um, are a bit dated, um, you know, one of the questions asks if you've been exposed to your father hitting your mother, um, which doesn't account for um, different gendered couples or the fact that women can be abusers. Um, one of the questions is a bit ableist. It um, at, it counts as an ace if so, if someone in your family has a mental illness, which isn't necessarily going to be a you know a a, a traumatic event for somebody, but generally speaking, it's a useful tool. And again, like anything, a high A score doesn't always mean you'll have poor outcomes. I have a very high A score, um, and obviously I'm wonderful and fabulous. Um, love, right. <laughs> right. Like I'm great. Uh, but also I had a lot of barriers to overcome. Um, so anyway, that is my long spiel about ACE scores, but also I think it's really important to understand those. Um, if anything, just to, um, alleviate concerns that trauma is impossible to measure and that there's no data on it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and Sandra, I, I don't know about you, but I there's been a huge movement recently of like know your score. And they're talking about know your ACE score. And I think for, for people who aren't familiar or, or trauma might be a little bit scary, you know, that that word itself evokes like, ah, I can't, I'm a behavior analyst, I can't touch trauma. Um, you know, doing the ACEs you know, questionnaire yourself can be really eye-opening just to really kind of hear and think about from your own lived experience, you know, adverse conditions that you might've been put in that, that maybe you haven't really thought about like that before. So I've definitely used kind of that questionnaire in that way before, just, just for some perspective taking moments. That's really awesome. And thank you so much for, for that insight. Um, and I just want to make sure that, that uh, our listeners are aware that this is a term that's widely used across disciplines. It's not just, it's clearly, mostly not <laughs> behavior analysis, but uh, there is a ton of information out there. We'll link the CDC um, website that uh, Sandra mentioned in the show notes. Um, and if Rosalie and Sandra refer to ACEs, they're probably referring to adverse childhood experiences. So just use context if they're referring specifically to that specific assessment. Um, all right, so these are the definitions that we're gonna be using throughout the debate. Um, just a few debate specifics. We're gonna do a coin toss in a minute uh, to determine speaking order. Each debater will have equal opportunities to speak and will have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the debate format we use, check out our show notes or listen to our podcast's introductory episode. Um, one thing I really just want to emphasize before we start is that our most important modification to the traditional debate formats is there's no winner or loser here. We all kind of want to move forward in the same direction. Our intention is to present a different point of view of a con somewhat, con this one was somewhat controversial, but maybe like this one might be less well-known or less widely disseminated um, than you may have previously considered. So we're really aiming at disseminating the science in a constructive way by sharing knowledge and respect. 
All right, so we're gonna start with a coin toss um, and the winner will get to choose whether to speak first or second. Heads goes to Rosalie, representing the pro side. Tails goes to Sandra, representing the con side. So I'm gonna put my coin in my cup and here we go. And the winner is Tails. So Sandra, would you like to speak first or would you like to speak second? I will go first. Awesome, woohoo. So Sandra, you're gonna speak first representing the con side and give the opening remarks that ABA is not inherently trauma-informed. And again, the motion that we are debating is that ABA is inherently trauma-informed. So Sandra, take it away. All right. So, um, so when we talk about this and this conversation, I think what's important is the word inherent. And when I think about this, I think about inherent being happening organically. And in this case, I think that we are not doing trauma-informed ABA organically. I think trauma-informed work is absolutely within our scope and it's within our science. However, we are not implicating, we are not implementing it and that there needs to be a restructuring in how we're doing and implementing our science. And so I think that that's the key piece. I think the way that we are, our default, the way we've been trained to do ABA is the opposite of trauma-informed. <laughs> and as a result, I don't think that we can say that it's inherently trauma-informed because that's not the way it's being done. And something can't be inherent if it doesn't happen automatically. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I feel like that's a great opening for your, uh, for your side. Cause I feel like it, it really gives insight into, to what you're debating. So thank you for that. Uh, now we're going to move on to Rosalie, who will give her opening remarks representing the pro side of the debate that ABA was designed to be trauma-informed. And again, the motion is ABA is inherently trauma-informed. So take it away, Rosalie. Awesome. Sandra, thank you for, for kind of unpacking that word inherently, right? Cause I, I want to kind of take us back to the beginning back to our radical behaviorism roots with Skinner, where Skinner talked about kind of inside the organism as well as outside of the organism. And, and even kind of putting on that kind of lens of that kind of functional contextualism, where it's, we're kind of looking through that lens, we're utilizing kind of that view that Skinner created of radical behaviorism, where, where we want to think about not only the organism, what we can observe, but how that organism also reacts within the context, right? So all of our principles, all of our tactics kind of dating back from Skinner when he first started and even Watson and Pavlov and all those guys, all of those guys, I think, had that view, right? Where they looked at the outside and the inside. So I guess that's where I'm starting off at from our roots um, back in the day with Skinner that we were inherently trauma informed and that perhaps we've lost our way a little bit and we need to find our way back to those roots, back to those looking at the organism within the organism within the context uh, that we observe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, it's so interesting. I wish that I could have been, you know, a fly on the wall with them and like okay. been part of like her in their brain, you know, to see exactly what, exactly what, how they 
divide what they would think of us today, you know, of how we're doing everything today. Mom, I don't want to do the dishwasher, please. I don't ever wish there was homework. It's so boring. You know dinner. You know dinner? Ugh, parenting is hard. How do I know I'm doing this right? I just want my kids to turn out okay. I wish I could talk this out with someone who won't judge me. You are not alone. We got you. We are enrolling into our next virtual parent support group right now at GrahamBehaviorServices.com. Our purposeful parenting program was created by BCBAs and perfected by a future social worker. And we're moms, so we get it. It's exactly the kind of validation and positivity you need. It could really help. GrahamBehaviorServices.com There's a blog and parenting courses too. Thanks, Mom and All right, so the next segment of our debate is the crossfire. Both sides will have an opportunity to ask and respond to each other's questions. We will begin with a question from Sandra representing the con side of the motion. Uh, Rosalie representing the pro side will answer and then follow up with her own question. This alternating pattern will continue until the end of the segment. Uh, debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for any clarification if necessary. And as always, you know, I know you both will keep it respectful. So go ahead, Sandra. Floor is yours. So Rosalie, you know, when we were preparing for this, you had said some interesting things um, about um, uh, Skinner and his box and the pigeons. And I do think that this speaks to your point. Um, ultimately, though, I still think our, our implementations and things like that um, are um, uh, keeping us from being inherently trauma-informed because we're able to sway away. But I'm wondering if you can explain some more about um, those stories and how they um, apply to your point. Sure, and I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring in our seven dimensions at this point too, because I, I think that those play a massive role in what you're talking about too, Sandra, where we've kind of swung away um, from some things that are very critical in our field or maybe swung a little too far in certain dimensions um, of our seven dimensions. So if we go back, we were doing a uh, trauma-informed crowdcast on our Happy Medium crowdcast channel and somebody threw in the chat and I cannot remember her name right now, but she said, Skinner never touched his pigeons. And it was like this aha moment for me where I was like, oh my, well, yeah, Skinner never touched his pigeons. And I was like, how many times when I was trained way back in the day, did we do hand over hand to build momentum, to support individuals in, in kind of getting where we wanted them to be? Yeah. And I was like, that was never part of the original kind of, you know, how organisms respond to their environmental events. And so it was really just an aha moment to me that, that yeah, like you're right, Sandra, when you say like we've strayed really far, and I think something that comes to mind for me is our technological pendulum on our seven dimensions. We've become so technological in our implementation of our science that we've almost forgotten that, yeah, 
Skinner never touched his pigeons, <laughs> nor when he kind of developed kind of that baby in the box or whatnot, which, which actually was a way, <laughs> I think I was reading more about it and it was actually a way to soothe children and keep them comfortable <laughs> um, while their parents were busy doing something else. And he even enriched the environment of the kind of, of his, uh, uh, the individuals in the box. So uh, the more that I've been doing reading about that, the more I'm like, wow, Skinner really had it right. And how did we move so far away from this? Um, so Sandra, in your view, kind of thinking about those seven dimensions, you know, what would you say that we've kind of missed on maybe uh, that have made us kind of less trauma informed over time? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, really, I think the the article that came out this year really highlighted, right, is this this choice, right? Yeah. And the the most important piece of choice is being able to say no and deny touch. Yep. Right. And, you know, long ago, years and years ago, we started allowing students to take unlimited breaks. They can refuse to work, they can say no to goals, and they can refuse touch. And we don't have students sit and take breaks the entire session. Um, and if they do, they're sick or something really bad has happened to them. And if we had ended up doing some awful follow through, that would have been really traumatic. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's that's the that's the real crux of the problem is everything comes back to choice and assent and dissent. And when we force touch, not only does it create trauma events, right? It creates learned helplessness and it puts our students at risk for abuse. And I mean, I had, I had a student, he was a young adult. I was a brand new BCBA. And there was some really severe behaviors, which I won't go into for privacy reasons, but I was doing my best bcba -ing, And I built this relationship with this student and he wasn't talking and he was not ever aggressive with me, but he was aggressive with other people. And, um, one day we were just like, we can't do anything. So I'm going to do contingent exercise because whatever, it's not that bad of a punishment. And he was kind of lazy, right? Is what we said. And so we had to stand up and sit down five times. And so the student did it the first time I asked him to. And then he was aggressive again. And then I told him to do it. And he ran away from me. I was like, well, I have to follow through. So I walked after him told him to stand up, sit down. And he attacked me, he ragdolled me to the ground and he scratched up my face. And his mom took him and was like, I'm taking him to the doctor. Don't take him to the doctor. He has to go to the hospital. And she took him to the doctor and he had arthritis. And so I had tortured this young man and he did it because he trusted me and I have never done any type of punishment intervention since then, because you never know 
how how an intervention is going to affect a student and that's what needs that that's what we need to be thinking about with these like universal trauma precautions right something as simple as removing a cookie from a tantruming child can be a trauma event trigger for a kid with early food deprivation right and so i've kind of gotten off topic from the original question but i think it all you know comes together there and all of that is a behavior change, right? Is that he was experiencing tra trauma or pain and that's a setting event. Yep. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And obviously there were other pieces involved in this aggression chain, but no matter how much I ignored him and how much I chased him around, he was not going to stand up and sit down. Yeah. And nor nor was that an important- 100%. To his daily existence as mm -mm. as a as a human and in part of his world, right? And I think uh, I I appreciate that story because I I think I have a few of those as well where I you just you have these almost like I don't know I actually call them like flashbacks to my early career where yeah, I agree yeah where I was following through on things. I was using escape extinction. I was using kind of prompt hierarchies, mm -hmm. uh, but I wasn't being sensitive to the individual. I was being very sensitive to my procedures um, and making sure that I've, I, I was putting procedure over human. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't always what needed to happen. And then you have a couple of those kind of aha, moments where you're like what wait a second my ethics code says this right and i believe our ethics code really strongly supports trauma informed care mm -hmm. in especially now that we've yeah, got you know absolutely. our number one thing is do no harm right right so you mm -hmm. kind of read that now and you kind of have those i have those flashback moments where i'm like whoa I was using escape extinction because that was the best scientific principle for the uh, for the challenge at hand. But wow, what did that do? Where did I end up? And most importantly, now, where did that individual end up? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a, a lot of, you know, a lot of I, I tend to go back to the beginning. I'm like, wow, would Skinner have have used escape extinction on humans like that? You know, would he? I don't know uh, the answer to that. But um, I think a lot of us have have uh, stories like that and challenges like that. And I, I hope that um, as we continue our discussion, we can really impart to kind of new up and coming BCBAs, you know, this is a great time to learn from from us who have kind of been through that the middle ages right like yeah right <laughs> where are we now yeah and i think too that um it's you know no better do better and i think that what we run into um is that bcbas are particularly BCBAs who have been BCBAs for a long time um, have a difficult time um, coming to terms with that, which I think is, again, if we want to, you know, 
you know, uh, move back from our agreeing love fest to the, uh, the, the topic about like the inherentness here, right. Is that we have, you know, I think, I think it's easy to say, you know, our science is good and we're veering. Right. And, but if our science has continued, you know, for the last 30 years, been implemented in a way that's harmful, then I think we need to consider whether or not that means our science has been the problem, right? Um, and so as we're trying to change it, and again, it is our science, right? All of this is applicable to our science, right? When, when I do my stuff, it's about looking at trauma as setting events, right? So we do a, we do a chain, right? So I mentioned the kid with the cookie. So you have a kid, he sees a cookie, he jumps up and down and screams, right? And his mom gives him a cookie, right? The typical thing, access to the cookie, right? We have a setting event, he missed breakfast, right? A good behavior analyst is gonna make sure in the future we feed him breakfast. Now, possibly we're never gonna even have to do an intervention of having him ask for a cookie, of doing a planned ignore, right? Because if he's not hungry, maybe he's not gonna tantrum for a cookie. We're also going to do an antecedent intervention. We're going to put the cookies away because now he can't tantrum for cookies when he sees a cookie because he can't see cookies. Eventually, he's going to have to tolerate seeing cookies or whatever. But why do we make a four-year-old, my imaginary four-year-old, stare at cookies and not eat them? That's mean, right? So we have these two interventions. If we also know he's experienced food deprivation, right, now we're going to put in place interventions like making sure there's an anytime food out, making sure he has access to carrots all the time, assuming he likes carrots, making sure we have a food schedule posted so he knows when lunch and snack are, right? And so now we're going to help alleviate that stress around access to food. And so now we have this beautiful intervention where he's got access to food, a food schedule. We're going to make sure he eats breakfast. We're going to keep the cookies out of the house. And then we can teach him how to say cookie. And then we can have a compassionate intervention, which is a whole other story, right? And so that's the intervention. It's all within our science. But people are skipping that piece about asking about the trauma because we're scared and we think that that's not within our scope. Yeah. And those emotions that show up, right? Mm -hmm. When you have been deprived of food, you know, that is an environmental condition mm -hmm. that's observable, that's notable, but then you've got kind of that whole inside stuff shows up. What body sensations show up when you've been deprived of food? Does that change how your body responds when you see food? If we're thinking, Right. We're not always, I feel like we've, we've gotten ourselves a little bit stuck in this operant conditioning hammer zone where it's like, all that we look at is our antecedent behavior consequence, instead of looking at some of that kind of respondent conditioning and even some of that for, for languaging individuals, you know, whether they're speaking or non-speaking those relational networks, right? Like man, even the sight of cookie, even somebody saying the word cookie for an individual who's been deprived of food could really send them into a, you know, a place of 
we've got body sensation showing up. We've got emotion showing up, right? Fear, am I ever going to get that cookie again? Like mm -hmm. ultimatums in our head, I'm never yeah. going to get that cookie. Um, you know, and then we have kind of that operant chain of behaviors, right? Where it's like last time I tantrumed and I didn't get a cookie and that made all of my heavy emotions even heavier. So the next time I see a cookie, what's going to happen to me? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that's something where our, our science has the all of these parts and we've had them developing over the last, what is it like? I think it was like 84 years ago uh, when uh, Skinner put out his first book. Over the last 84, we've had all of these developing things. And maybe we've kind of lost our way because we've, we've picked just a couple to focus on. We picked just kind of operant conditioning as our go-to. I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that, Sandra? Well, and you know, it's actually interesting um, because um, in my workshops, I say at the beginning, I'm gonna use feelings words and I can operationally define them if you want to, but you're annoying if you make me do that. <laughs> like I literally say that. That's so funny. Um, because, and I use the word anxious. Yeah. And I'm like, this causes anxiety. And I'm like, whatever you can say, like beating heart. And like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, but y'all know what anxious means. Like, we know what that word means. So yeah. like, please just accept that that's what the word means and we can move on. Um, but, you know, Skinner was talking about operationally defining goodness. Yeah. Right. And so like, that was a thing. Um, and, you know, operationally defining kindness then is not outside the scope of what our science should, you know, do. Right. And when you talk, when you go into the like ABA Facebook groups, right. And you say like, is our intervention kind? Then you get BCBA saying, well, what does that mean? It kind doesn't, you know, kind is teaching the kid not to hit themselves in the face. And it's like, yes, the students should not hit themselves in the face. However, we don't want to just learn helplessness them out of hitting themselves. We need to actually be addressing this chain here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think uh, that in the happy medium approach, we say make no rigid rules because as soon as you make a rigid rule, you're going to meet a learner who breaks that rigid rule and it doesn't work very well for you or that learner in their context. But the one rule that we that we do have that you should never break is is to be kind, right? Is to be kind to that person, that human in front of you. Um, especially if they're in a place in their skill development where, uh, you know, where they can't communicate things that have occurred in their past history, where they only have behavioral reactions to environmental events to let you know what their history is, right? They can't report to you, you know, yeah, I used to watch my, you know, my mom, you know, hit my sibling or whatnot. You know, so it, it really, I think that above all, be kind should be kind of go right along with do no harm, 
in our ethics code, right? What is kindness? And, and kindness should be individually defined too, because for some individuals being kind to them is giving them space. And for other individuals being kind to them is giving them hugs and cuddles and letting them sit on your lap while you work with them, giving them a piggyback to a yeah, safe spot, right. yeah. you know, whatever it might be, but, but above all be kind. And I, I think that might be if I kind of drill down, um, you know, even I was reading something about Skinner saying that by 1984, we were going to be done with coercive education. And I was like, oh, Skinner, wow. we, that hasn't happened yet. And we're in, you know, we're not even close to there. We're not even close to there. So like, again, like I think Skinner, I think Skinner would say something similar, like above all be kind um, if he were here today. And I think that is kind of one of the foundations of, um, you know, trauma-informed care is first and foremost, being kind and respectful of the fact that everybody's an individual and it's okay to be different. So when you say that there's no rules, um, are there situations where you all will do extinction procedures and things like that? So I definitely used to utilize extinction, like, that's what I was taught, right? Back in the day. And we've shifted so much that the only time that we utilize extinction, which actually, I don't think it is extinction, is if we get an individual to a point of escalation, that they're in fight, flight, freeze, collapse. And we can't even do anything to support them through that behavior. So I don't think that is extinction. We're not withholding anything at any any point in time. So we work so hard to support individuals in sustaining homeostasis, sustaining regulation so that we don't have to get to that point. Um, so we don't utilize extinction anymore, especially escape extinction. Um, I would, I would much rather have a kid happy in homeostasis where I can teach new skills uh, than putting them, you know, purposefully in conditions where I'm going to not allow access to reinforcement. And I, I'm guessing, is that, is that similar to your practice as well, Sandra? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and yeah, we, nobody ever has to work and they, yeah always end up coming back. And I always tell my staff that like, well, if somebody's always refusing a task, then that means it's a bad task and we're doing something wrong. Like we don't have to like make somebody do something. And we talk to teachers about that too. And they're like, well, they have to do their work. And it's like, okay, well, we're not doing something right. So let's figure it out. Um, and also, you know, the age old, well, they're not doing it anyway if they're screaming on the ground. So let's figure out how to do it um, with them asking appropriate, like with them asking effectively. But um, but with the, as far as like students being so upset, um, you know, we, I would, we don't consider that extinction because that we, we talk about, they always have an out. Yeah. Right. That they, they can ask for their, their, their break. They can ask for attention. They can ask, like they can, move they can uh, request what they need we are honoring not touching them and their communication um it's just 
no learning or anything's going to take place. So we honor their communication at that point. You know, we have, um, we talk a lot about one of the things that happened in, during COVID, like when COVID first started, that just enraged me in the Facebook groups was that in more than one occasion, you know, two weeks into COVID, parents came on and were like, my kid won't stop following me around. Or they cry every time I leave. And parents were told, oh, don't pay attention to them. Do one minute away and two minutes away because like their kid was going to learn if they like cried, they were going to get hugs during a pandemic where everyone was dying. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, this mom can hug her baby right now because the world has shut down. And um, and so we spend a lot of time telling parents that like, okay, yeah, so we've given a student a direction, but you can totally love on your kid right now. Like if that's what needs to happen. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, once you're a parent too, right? Like, you know, and I think Sandra, you shared that you're a foster parent, but parenting's about connection, right? And when you're, when you're ignoring your child who's who's clearly kind of engaging in hey i need something right now mm -hmm. you know when we think about that from from kind of a trauma background right i need something looks very different uh for so many individuals right i need something isn't always verbal i need something mm -hmm. or using a communication device you know, sometimes it's, it's sitting in a corner with your face towards the wall. Like I need something. And I, I think that that is something that has inherently kind of shifted over the last kind of 20, 30 years in our field is like, like not all behavior is communication. We use behavior for different purposes, right? But we can observe an individual, utilize our behavior analytic tools and, and from the context, notice what they need in terms of that connection. And I, I don't think that there's anything inherently anti-ABA about creating a connection with a learner that's deeper than pairing, that, that's bigger and beyond pairing, seeing us as a reinforcer or, or a valuable part of their context. There can be something deeper without also breaking our, you know, our boundaries, right? Like our I'm not going to become, you know, Granny Rosalie. Now that I have gray hair, I'm not Granny Rosalie, you know. <laughs> but, but that that deeper connection's okay. That trust, that level of trust, which is so critical in uh, trauma-informed care, building that trust and that that knowing, hey, I'm going to be there for you, even if you aren't your best today. Mm -hmm. I well, and I do think there's a difference between the level of affection you're encouraging a parent to give during coaching and then what you're going to get from a therapist. But, you know, if a, if a kid's so dysregulated, I'm not going to say, I need you to pick up your toy. You just throw through, oh, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's not, but like that, I'm not going to keep pointing to that for the direction I'm going to stop and I'm going to sit down and be like, okay, like touch my fingers. Like, let's do our grounding here. Let's take a deep breath. Let's call your mom to give you a, like, give you a hug. Let's calm you down. All right. We're good. We're calm. Okay. Now let's go pick up this toy. 
<laughs> and yeah. like, let's figure out what's going on because I can just sit here and point to this toy forever. But like, that's not like, how, what, what's that going to do? That's just going to make everybody so stressed out. Yeah. The and, heavy emotion load, right? Yeah. For everyone. Yeah. I really appreciate all of that, like the candor and the, that you guys put into that conversation. Cause that's like so beneficial, I think for all professionals to hear, you know, I, I have the same stories like you both do, you know, of my, you know, my epiphany was with my kids. So like everybody has like, like different stories. Um, mm -hmm. and I feel like I loved how you said Sandra too, about, um, how, um, how nobody has to work but you know, like then there's the studies that they want to work. So like find the work that's fun for them. Right. Like, um, and again, like Rosalie, I'm not great at put, picking up those articles, but I know where I put them when I, so I went and looked it up while you guys were talking, while you both were talking and, um, Holly Gover, Dr. Holly Gover, uh, just put out a paper and colleagues in 2022 on the generality preference for contingent reinforcement. So if we find what they love, you know, they'll want to do that. So that's, you know, I feel like really important, um, to get out there to the professionals. Here I am again, interrupting a perfectly amazing conversation. I just wanted to hop in and give the second code phrase, happy medium. Not only is it the approach that Rosalie has developed, it's also the outcome of most of our podcast debates. We are perfecting the art of disagreement by finding a happy medium. Go forth and earn that ethics credit. GrahamBehaviorServices.com slash showdown. All right. So our next segment will be the rebuttal. So Sandra representing the con side will speak first. So Sandra, go ahead and take it away. Um, so um, ABA is not inherently trauma informed. Um, and the main reason for that is because we still need to work so hard to um, improve our field to be trauma informed. Um, you know, like I said before, all of the things to make us trauma informed are absolutely um, within the scope of our practice, but our field is validating things that are going to cause um, uh, trauma to our students. I mean, a, a, a prime example is, you know, the, the study that was published in Java just this year with the feeding therapy, where they were feeding kids their own vomit. Um, and obviously the JRC stuff. Um, and that is stuff that is actively happening on the large scale. Um, and when those are talked about in with BCBAs, there are a lot of BCBAs that find these to be problematic, but there are a lot of BCBAs that are saying that these are necessary practices and do not see a problem with them. And until that is not happening anymore, then ABA cannot be considered inherently trauma-informed. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So um, Rosalie, do you want to give a rebuttal on the, on the opposite side? So looking through my rose-colored glasses that I always wear, and people who know me know that I, I wear those rose-colored glasses all the time. Um, you know, I, I think for, for a long time within our little practice, you know, within Eclipse, you know, there's, there's 10 of us. We're not big. 
on purpose. And, and I, I think we've practiced from that trauma-informed lens without calling it a trauma-informed lens, utilizing our beautiful science. And I've connected with a lot of other practitioners that are doing that, um, you know, without, you know, that Raja Raman article came out and I was like, wow, check mark. Wow. Yeah, right. Check right. <laughs> like, look at, look at, wait a second. We match up with this. And I was like, but wait a second, we've been doing this for 10 years. Um, and so I think that, that maybe, and, and Sandra, as I heard you talking, I, I really, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think I've just kind of kept my rose, rose colored glasses on and my ostrich head in the sand kind of doing what, what we've been doing. And I think there's quite a few practitioners out there that are trucking along with their ostrich head in the sand and their rose colored glasses on, but how do we kind of as a field create that as the norm rather than the exception, um, which it feels a little bit like that right now when you when we kind of bring up some of that kind of JRC kind of stop the shock, which uh, again, you know, I took my ostrich head out of the sand to like look into that. And I was like, whoa, this is still happening in 2022. And same thing, very similarly, when I heard about that uh, feeding article, I was like, whoa. So I feel like um, even though I'm supposed to be saying, yes, our field is, our science is inherently trauma-informed, how it is applied. I think I have to agree with you, Sandra. It's it's not applied wholeheartedly in that trauma-informed lens um, as it sits for every practitioner at the moment. Thank you for that. Um, for our listeners who aren't sure uh, what JRC is, the Judge Rottenberg Educational Center in Massachusetts, um, and I'll put, a, I'll try to find an article that kind of covers that in a um, in a scientific way um, in regards to what both of you are talking about, and put it in our show notes. Um, and I also want to say something about the JRC as far as like the field goes is that we're all taught about it in school. Um, we all learn about how it's used and we always hear the story about the student who hit himself in the face so hard he lost an eye and how he was about to lose his other eye because he was hitting himself and how he went there and they gave him electric shock and he like saved his eye and then like got to go home and live his best life. Um, but they don't teach us about the other, another student who was shocked so badly he was in a coma for 30 days. Right. You know, and I think that that's really telling. And then when you hear, when you see people have these conversations online, you only hear about the story that we're told in school. I don't know a single BCBA that didn't hear the I story yeah. in school. And maybe they're not telling it in all the classes anymore, but they were. So I think this is important to know that that's also a component of what's happening in this conversation about the school. Right. Yeah. And I think that actually brings up a really a bigger issue in our field, which is a lot of our research is conducted in labs. It's conducted in very kind of controlled context and only successful research is published, um, which doesn't really doesn't, give us, yeah. Like the, cu the culture too, cultural pieces too. Exact. So if my data doesn't look good, does that mean I'm a bad behavior analyst? No, 
that means that I need to be the scientist that I went to school to become to determine what elements of my intervention or of the context that my intervention is part of, what's going on? What do I need to investigate? And I, I think that that's a really big challenge in our field right now when we only hear about the success. We only see data that looks good. We only see data in research articles that, that was worthy of publishing through peer review. Um, and I think a lot of the autistic voices and, and neurodivergence that we're hearing from now talking about interventions, you know, we're hearing about the stuff that didn't go well. And, and as a field, I think we need to be humble and, and we need to listen and hear that. And, and maybe we need a, we need a, this didn't go well journal. You yeah. Know? That's actually yeah. a really good idea. You know, right. They say, us. yeah, like Jordan didn't make how many basketball teams before he, you know, was on the bulls, um, totally. to, um, and I know I want to try to, um, get as much of, uh, this as possible because this conversation is so beneficial, but I'm also aware of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to, um, just ask you guys real quickly, how do we do that? So we've talked about, you know, how I think that we're, I think again, my, my little, you know, microcosm experience in our field, I think that we're doing a good job disseminating this to newly minted BCBAs, but how do we get this? information out there to some of the more veteran professionals so that they can kind of in, infuse trauma-informed care into their everyday practices. Ooh, that is, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> so it's interesting because they're not coming to my workshops. All the new BCBAs are at my workshops. I'm having 150 people standing room only coming to my workshops, they're giving me five out of five ratings, telling me they've wanted to leave the field and are staying now. Um, when I do a keynote, I get, you know, 135s and like seven ones. And, you know, the ones are clearly, you know, BCBAs who you know, have been in the field for a while. And I'm sure, you know, obviously not all veteran BCBAs are doing this old school thing. Clearly um, here you are, right? Right. <laughs> um, but they're not coming to the workshops. Um, and so that, that is the struggle. Um, and then there's also the problem is that I come on these things and I'm like the old BCBAs. They do everything old school. So that's also not very welcoming. And so I also struggle with that because that's also problematic. Um, and it's the generalization and um, it's something I need to work on too. I hear, I was going to echo that actually, Sandra, because um, a lot of people that are attending our weekly crowdcasts are, are new BCBAs. Um, looking, looking for something different, right? Like something different than what they got presented in their coursework. But I will say um, I've had similar experiences where um, more seasoned professionals uh, definitely give me kind of lower scores on the rating. But I've also had some that have been like, I've been practicing like this for years and it's so fun to hear you know, another BCBA with the same perspective. And I'm like, oh, you were another ostrich. We were just, you know, we had our head in the sand together. That's awesome. Um, 
you know, but I, I think from, from my perspective, a huge, a huge challenge in our field is, is our own psychological flexibility and our own ability to, you know, like we made this huge kind of migration away from other kind of human service sciences, you know, which, you know, Skinner was part of, you know, psychology, but we've made this huge branch away and, and it's like, people are hesitant to come back. Like what's wrong with, with coordinating with others? What's wrong with learning from neurosciences? What's wrong with learning? It doesn't mean that we're going to, I'm not going to become a neuroscientist or whatnot. I'm still going to be my behavior analyst self, but like, what can I learn from them? So I think really that, that foundation of willingness and, and psychological flexibility is, is just something that we as a field need to, need to work on with, with each other. Um, and admit when we're wrong, it's okay to be wrong. We're scientists. We're not perfect. That's awesome. Such good insight for both of you. Um, is there anything that either of you want to say? There's so much, there's so many things that I want to talk about. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. Um, but do you guys want to, um, just wrap up real quickly, anything like any final thoughts, um, that you wanted to say, uh, in defense of, um, your side, Sandra, would you want to say anything in conclusion? No, I just, I would just love to see people learning about this. I think that, um, you know, COVID was a real opportunity for BCBAs to see that trauma events are real and the effects that it has on themselves and on students. Um, And um, that I think, um, you know, every kid now that we work with has experienced a trauma event and that we all now have to be trauma-informed because every single child who was two or older on May 20th, 2020 has experienced a trauma event and we need to be working with our students like that. Thank you for that. Rosalie, anything in closing? Just, I I hope we can all kind of get a little bit back to our roots and kind of really make it inherent. You know, we're not there. And I I appreciate Sandra's point um, and her her position and and everything she said around that. And I I agree. I think COVID has, COVID will be a new, a new thing on the ACEs assessment. And, and I think even for all of us, I, I don't think that we've uh, given ourselves enough grace coming through COVID, kind of what that's been like, uh, what it's been like to practice through COVID. Um, and I think we're going to be seeing the effects for, for a while. So it's a, it's a great time to really jump into this uh, part of our field um, to support everybody, including ourselves in the workplace, for sure. Yeah. COVID's definitely that huge face change line, right? And on everybody's graph. <laughs> um, I'm, I really appreciate everything that you guys gave into this conversation. I, I have to have you back, you know, to talk about like, like Sandra, that your basics acronym, like I really wanted to talk about silliness because I feel like there needs to be more studies on humor and Rosalie, all of the integration that you do for ACT um, and uh, DNAV like that is just so interesting to me. So I really appreciate all, everything that you guys have given to this, to- this specific topic. And, um, I applaud everything and I appreciate everything you're doing to help our field kind of move forward in this way. So thank you so much both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.
I just want to take one more minute and thank Rosalie and Sandra. It was such an enlightening conversation and has really moved me to re-examine all of my relationships, both in my professional and personal life. So thank you both so much for everything that you brought to the conversation today. Uh, We recorded this podcast remotely, so thanks for your patience if the audio varied a little bit between all of us. We want to hear about the topics that you want to hear about. And we'd also love to have you as a guest debater. Send us your ideas and all your respectful suggestions on ways we can improve this podcast. You can email us at showdown at grahambehavior.com. Graham is G-R-A-H-A-M, like the cracker. And stay tuned. New ABA Ultimate Showdown episodes are coming out on a completely intermittent and unpredictable schedule. When we have great content, we'll let you know about it. So follow us on social media. You can subscribe to our podcast on the platform that you listen to. You can visit our website at grahambehaviorservices.com slash showdown. You can like or follow Graham Behavior Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, or come work for us. We are always looking for passionate employees and would love to have you join our family at Graham. We also appreciate your thoughtful review on the platform that you listen to us. And we always ask you two things. One, be respectful and thoughtful when you respond to other people and their ideas. Remember that everyone has a unique learning history that brought them to this moment. And two, go forth and deliver good ABA.